Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior tomorrow knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the 10th episode in our 12-part series, in which we'll be taking a deep dive into the Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. So before we get started today, Hasten, we've got one little piece of business that came in the form of an email that we received to our press at TomorrowlandTimes.com email address, where we encourage anyone to send us their questions, either about the show or the film, or even just to share uh, some of their memories of having seen it. But we got an email from one of our listeners who had some questions about some of the trickier logistical issues of the film. But behind it, there was this question I thought I would pose to you. And it's more about the timeline of the fiction. And I think it is interpretable based on what is in the movie, but I wanted to get your take on it. Basically, the question behind his questions was this. When Frank was exiled in 1984, and in the context of the movie, we know that He got kicked out because he built something that he shouldn't have, which we know is the Monitor. At what point in the Monitor's development, in regard to how Nix describes it in his various speeches at the end of the film, at what point in that development do you think Frank was kicked out? Do you believe they had already discovered the inevitability? Do you think that the impending doom and all of those descriptions that Nix makes about we kept checking back in, the percentage kept going up? until it was at 100%. Do you think the monitor was at 100% when Frank got kicked out? Or do you think it was lower and that prediction was still further out and there was some other drama simply with the implications of what this machine could do and the horror and terror of that grand discovery that got Frank kicked out? Or do you think everything Nick's described had fully happened 25 plus years ago? And if so, What indeed has Nix been doing in those 25 years if the inevitability is old news to him? So we know the commercial was supposed to go live sometime around 1984. We also know that was around the time that Frank was kicked out of Tomorrowland. My personal guess is that like any other doomsday scenario, they saw the probability early on. Nix had a solution, probably as the governor of this time, at the time, or some sort of other higher ranking official. He might not have been the governor suggested these types of solutions. And my guess is, is that Frank disagreed with him 100% being the sort of young, optimistic, you know, teenager he would have been at the time or, or young, young adult. He would have been a young adult at the time. I think that that's at that point in time, we would have seen Tomorrowland start to pivot under Nix's leadership into this, whatever function it gained after they knew that the inevitability was going to happen. Right. And creating the same sort of like feedback loop of, oh, we're doing the right stuff because the inevitability is going to happen, you know, so we're not going to do the fancy spaceship rockets, you know, out because we're never going to need to bring that to Earth. We're going to do these very down, you know, ridiculously simple actions in order to save humanity or what we can of it. So I would say that by the time Frank, when Frank gets exiled, Tomorrowland is not in a perfect state, but it's starting to crumble and it's starting to get like that that doubt is starting to seed in because of what he did and i think that his solutions were probably very pragmatic and very idealist and it just didn't work with what nix wanted to go forward with right and based on the fact that what we definitely know happened in those intervening 25 years is that nix slowly but surely not only kicked out 
all the other great thinkers after Frank, but he also eliminated all of the projects other than the Monitor. So I think that we can safely assume that right before opening up to the public, there was still this vibrant diversity of projects going on. And the thing that changed was after Frank got exiled, one by one, all the other things just fell away and the Monitor became everything. And Nix's priority on it had an effect on the entire city. And so that's why it looks as it does when they arrive. Now, whether or not it hit 100% all those years ago, I would say I don't think so, because it seems like Frank wouldn't have much to tune into when he's pirating that signal, if indeed it had hit 125 years ago. It's just, okay, great, we're going to go on a bender for 25 years, there's nothing we can do. I would rather think more along the lines of what you're saying. There's no definitive answers in the movie, so it's all completely open to interpretation. But I would say they probably discovered that there was this increasing probability. So maybe it was at the beginning of that process. And Nick said, if this is true at any percentage, we have got to shut down the opening and reassess everything about this city in the context of this. The idea that this doomsday is addictive. And obviously, Nix gets addicted to it. We see the effects of that. But perhaps that was the beginning of that journey when they had some big debate. And that is how I think of it as well, Haste, and what you were saying about them having a disagreement. I think that that disagreement about what should be done with the Monitor and all of the responsibility that comes with perhaps the most awesome scientific power ever created in this fictional universe Uh, And that was enough to put a schism between them and banishment uh, ensued. But I still think there was a lot of ground to go in terms of them continuing to tune in to the monitor. So I almost feel like they turned it on right around that time of the 1984, we're going to open to the world. And the implications of that just caused this huge debate in the city. And everyone was falling on different sides of the debate. And so I do not think the total 100% inevitability would have happened at that point. To me, it seems like it would be a multi-phase evolution and Nix would have to slowly come to a position of prominence in order to be able to kick everybody else out, essentially, and say, this is the most important thing about Tomorrowland. If we don't fix this, we can't fix anything. And so this is what this place is going to be about. And this dovetails beautifully into what we're going to be talking about today, which is the section of the movie comprised by the runtime from 1 hour 37 minutes and 57 seconds to 1 hour 45 minutes and 4 seconds, encompassing Casey's climactic epiphany and Nix's final revelation. Did you see that? David, I know that you saw that. That means that there is a chance. There's at least a chance. So Frank wakes up after having his neck violently struck by Nix's sleek tuning fork, his Tomorrowland edition of the ramshackle version that Frank used earlier in the movie. And this room he wakes up in, he screams and he sits right up on this bench that's in the middle of a completely empty room. And the ceiling is curved with its reflection in the shiny floor, almost looking like a giant eyeball. And I've got to say, the cinematography on this particularly wide angle of Frank waking up It's just one of the most beautifully composed shots in the movie. I often think about this and the ensuing scene, which is really just three characters talking to each other, is so beautifully directed, so compositionally elegant, just the subtleness of the camera moves and how it tells you the relationship to the characters 
alongside the blocking of where they're positioned. Casey's sitting off to the side, kind of slouched over, coming to terms with everything that she learned in the scenes that we discussed last time. And now Frank suddenly juts up and Athena's sitting next to him. That went quite well, don't you think? What happened? You're being deported. Again. So the process that Frank went through all the way back in 1984, he's right back where he started. He's about to get kicked out of Tomorrowland yet again. From a visual perspective, what I love about this is that it's just the three of them. There's no, there's no one else in this scene. I love this idea of Casey has been taken to Tomorrowland. She's seen, uh, she's seen the inevitability factor. They were knocked out and they wake up and it's just them. And they're kind of what's left of Tomorrowland. What we have here is this moment where we get another little zinger from Frank describing Nick's when Athena says we're being deported. He just kind of achingly sits up and says, well, that's Nick's for you. No new ideas. This really does underline the idea of Nix as not being a creator or an inventor himself, but someone who capitalizes and exploits the ideas of others, as he has with Frank's Walker algorithm, into what the monitor has now become. The well-intentioned concept of connecting across vast dimensional distances now into some kind of tachyonic nightmare that we will find out the further ramifications of mere minutes from now. I do love here that we get some remnants of the deleted moments throughout the dialogue of the two scenes we're talking about today. And the first one is right here, where Athena responds to Frank and says, Apparently your one ten thousandth variable in the inevitability wasn't convincing enough to change his mind. Now, when you just see the movie and they've cut out the moments where they talk about the literal inevitability called capital T, the capital I, inevitability, we just think she's talking about the concept of inevitability in the context of this particular sentence. But when we think about it in terms of those moments we now know are missing, this would have been another use of that as a distinct sort of proper noun phrase, whereas she just kind of rolls over it and you could take it as the language she chose to use about this idea. Be gentle. This is when Frank realizes Casey is slumped over there. And I love the camera move here. It's this literal pan. It's not a smooth dolly over. The camera just pans right over. You see her there. Then back to Frank and Athena. And I really love the way that Athena says, be gentle. Her delivery there is so sweet and so tender. And she knows that Frank needs to be reminded in this moment. He goes up to Casey and uh, she's not happy. You know, you'd think somewhere in the zillions of questions that I was asking you, you could have said, oh, Casey, well, that stuff's not really the issue because our future predicting machine says we're all going to die. And I really love the line that Athena follows that up with where she says, I did sort of hint at it. And that's her almost tacitly coming to terms with the ramifications of her strategy. Athena has been playing out a very particular strategy. And there's been many moments when it seemed like, okay, this has been working full speed ahead. But emotionally, when you keep something from someone, even if you think it's the best thing for them, like Athena put all her chips on Casey. And so she had a very particular idea about how she was going to reveal this information. And so the fact that she held it back for so long, that check is coming up due in this moment. And so all she really can say is we did sort of hint at it and in the script frank goes on to say you're right he admits it we should have told you and casey says no you were right what i came looking for 
it's gone. And then we catch up with her line from the movie, which is, This place has nothing to do with hope. It's the opposite of hope. Don't say that. Why not? You said it. And now we hear that pessimism seeking into the last optimist. If Casey is indeed the last optimist on Earth and now in Tomorrowland, it's gone. If she is indeed that flicker, that flicker is being threatened right here. This is a make it or break it moment for Casey Newton. She needs a miracle. You really are special. Why do you people keep saying that to me? I'm not. Why'd you even give me this? Hmm? This, this, why did you even give me this? And you have this great pan directly up to this close-up shot of the back of her and Athena. You can feel her anger through that shot. I just love it so much. I remember the first time that we saw it. You could just feel that expression coming out of her in that exact moment. I think, again, kind of related to us and our experience of what we saw after The Optimist leading up to the movie coming out kind of in that same kind of mindset. There was a little bit of the energy there that probably was involved with our ultimate decision to channel it into positivity with the creation of Stop Plus Ultra, but easily could have just been really sort of flailing disappointment at, I really thought something was coming. We thought there would be a part two leading into the movie. And so uh, the emotion is certainly relatable. There's no question there. And Britt Robertson plays it so perfectly. You're right, though, that camera move pushing in, following the back of Casey as she approaches Athena, it's really exact right energy. And I think that's the thing that really imprints on me from this scene is how talented of a director, just on a mechanical level, forget the storytelling instincts in the broader sense, in the screenwriting sense, because Brad Bird did a lot of the heavy lifting uh, on the sequences we're talking about today as a screenwriter, as we'll find, but directorially. Shooting three people having what amounts to a very simple conversation really on the page, he imbues it with this energy. He imbues it with this life. Every shot is just framed so perfectly. And I've got to believe that that compositional sense that he has was so honed in his years as an animator because you are choosing exactly the frame. You are having a graphical sense of layout, of staging, where the characters are, how they move through the frame. Is the frame moving with them? And so to see that happen here in what could have been shot so traditionally, you know, you could have just shot a nice wide master, get your two shots where you need them and just call it a day and cut it together because you think, oh, well, the audience is just listening to the dialogue. We don't need to do anything else. But here there are some really specific energetic setups that would have had to be done as individual setups and not just through the routine course of shooting traditional coverage. So I get so much respect out of Brad Bird as a filmmaker in this scene. And honestly, because it is this huge moment for Casey, I just think it's a great scene as is. She gets a little more time to stew in that anger and disappointment in the screenplay where her question to Athena of why you even gave me this pin continues. She says, a few days ago, I didn't even know this place existed. Why'd you even bring me here to tell me that fancy British brilliant cape guy took over and doesn't even care that the world is going to end? You showed me a place that was amazing and incredible, and it was a lie. If you're going to zap an idea into people's heads, you should really make sure that it's the truth, because you can't do that. You can't just zap. What I love about the scene is, is that you see her immediately figure out, obviously, you have the required montage of her putting together her story in her brain. And what I love about it is that in this particular scene, she's acting independently. She's acting on her own. She's physically away from... Athena and Frank, when she 
discovers it literally looking out into the into the black void abyss again just fantastic cinematography with the way that she whips and turns around and realizes oh there's a way for me to turn this around yeah this moment of epiphany is played so well and even though it's written just as it appears in the movie there are in that montage of flashing images that rush into Casey's mind uh, in the screenplay, you get a couple of those moments that didn't make the movie that would have been applicable to her putting the pieces of the puzzle together. For example, her holding the pin up to the television set and to Frank's monitors, those couple of moments where the interference from the pin was disrupting other technology. And those in the screenplay would have been pieces of evidence that Casey used to get to her final conclusion here, which is, you know, we've had this idea of the monitor from the last sequence as something that gazes outward. That idea that the tachyons revert back and show them these visions of the past and the future. But this is the moment where Casey realizes that door swings both ways. It's not just receiving the future, it's broadcasting it. And that's the importance of this moment. Her experience isn't just her experience. She's realizing in this moment how she is connected to every human being on the earth. There is a pin for everyone. They just haven't touched it like she has. I remember when the film came out, there was some criticism around this scene of, well, how did she just sort of figure it out? Uh, if there was any sort of concern I would have about cutting those previous scenes, showing the broadcasting power of the pin, or even attempting to write in some sort of way, understanding that that pin changed her state of mind. Yeah. I think yeah. this would have come off a lot clearer. I think that initially when you, when you first see the film and maybe you don't dive into it as much as, you know, as, as we did after, after right. we saw it. <laughs> Um, you get this sort of context of like, oh, it seems really weird that she just figured it out in the last moment. And I think that, you know, you have this challenge of it was not really conveyed very well, but like she didn't only see that experience, but she felt it and she felt like hope and optimism and whatever. It changed her mindset and how she thought about things completely. There were even some people who invoked the criticism of the deus ex machina, the idea that, oh, she just happened to get this idea out of nowhere, even though the evidence is all there. The pieces that she put together absolutely play fair in the rest of the movie. So the movie's not cheating in this moment. There were obviously other sequences that would have more deeply underlined the ideas that she is reflecting on in this particular moment. But it's another one of those things where even though the direct instances of those moments were removed. All of the ripples still remain. And so you will see all of the consequences of those moments throughout the rest of the movie. So yeah, it is probably something that needed to be underlined a little bit more. And maybe the consequences of removing them weren't fully weighted for the audience. But I do think that it does work. A goes to B goes to C in this moment. And everything that she needs to have seen to get where she needs to go was presented to her as it was to the audience. A line that jumps out at me now as we've been reinterpreting the movie and kind of seeing it through this modern critical lens of media and social media of the modern age and how we interact with it and doom scrolling and the monitors that we surround ourselves with. When she says, if you're going to zap an idea into people's heads, you should make sure it's the truth. And I mean, this is, this is a concept that is being debated on the world stage in terms of social media companies and their obligation to truth, their obligation to fact-checking, their obligation to 
content curation. That is a debate that is not going to be solved anytime soon, but it does feel like this is almost directly reaching out of the past through this movie into the present when you hear a line like that. I mean, I can't help but think of everything that's going on in the world right now. Yeah, and I can't help but think of how different the landscape was when this film came out in 2015 compared to where we are now. Yeah. You know, we knew we knew media and disinformation was a problem, you know, in the past, but I don't think we expected such an amplification of it in such a short period of time coming, you know, coming out of this. And I think that, again, as I've said before in previous episodes, like if this came out today, the analysis and context around it would be entirely different. In this particular line, I think that the depth and complexity of that issue in terms of this movie and in terms of the real world really does line up. Because if you think about what she's talking about, if you're going to zap an idea into people's heads, you should make sure it's the truth. She's talking about this vision of the future, this commercial that she saw versus the vision of the apocalypse that Nix showed her. And so when we think about the truth and we think about curating and fact checking and we think about disinformation, it's not even just about individual pieces of information that are a lie or that are misleading or that are misrepresented or lack context. But in relation to the movie here, it's this idea that if you only show people the apocalypse or you only show people negativity, it's not even that those individual things are wrong because Nix believes what he's showing. And it's just that the fact that he's showing it further brought it about, his information is not wrong. I do believe the world would end in the fiction of this movie if they hadn't done any intervention. I do believe that. So it's not that it was false. It's just that feedback loop of knowing the type and density of information you translate to people will affect the situation. It's not, you can't, there is no objective reporting. You know, there will be a consequence to every story that's put out and the energy in aggregate of all of those things. And so it almost to me reads as simply, yes, we can put out our fears, we can put out visions of the apocalypse, as long as it's also right alongside visions of optimism, visions of hope, a a pathway towards a better future, even if it's really hard to imagine one in that particular moment, we don't have access to a monitor in our real world. So really, the probability is going to be 50-50. We don't know if we're driving right towards the apocalypse or driving towards utopia. We have to at least be willing to counter the prevailing attitude with those possibilities. We've got to broaden our imagination to say, even in these darkest moments, we've got to at least imagine a path, even if it's unlikely, even if it's the smallest variable, put that alongside it. And I think there are a lot of people in our world right now who are wanting some good news and they're seeking it out. And yeah, they're going to be able to find it. But why do we have to dig so hard, I think is the question. These are all of the echoes that occur to me as I look back at this one piece of dialogue. But it does seem to have a lot to say about where we are right now. And certainly I don't have an answer, but I'm so glad to have this movie to help me harmonize with the question. This happened at the end of people's heads. Casey's had her epiphany and she's trying to catch Frank up. And she says, at your house, all the TVs, your doomsday room, you were boosting the feed from that monitor thing, right? How'd you do that? And right here, Frank says something interesting because this is another one of those vestigial mentions of a concept that was expounded upon in a deleted moment. But now this offhanded line is the only remaining hint of that idea within the movie. Frank says, No big deal. They're running so much power through it now. A ham radio could pick it up. It's just a matter of finding the right frequency. 
Here's a window hasten into that concept of just how much the monitor has taken up all the air in Tomorrowland and really everything. All the other projects have been mothballed. That's why we saw those launch platforms sitting empty and everything else fall into disrepair. Tomorrowland is about the monitor now. Not only are they pumping all of their resources into it, they're receiving enough energy to run everything out of it. So this cycle of destruction, of witnessing destruction, broadcasting destruction, it's a profitable industry. And I do think that's what the filmmakers were trying to get at, this idea that fear is profitable. You can go into the fear business. It's less risky than the optimism business. But look what has become of everything. Look at what has become of this vibrant city. It is now this monochrome, droll, singularly focused, walled off nothing. This is also the moment where you said Casey expounds on how that pin made her feel when she says, I touched this thing for a few minutes and I felt like anything was possible. Why can't the opposite happen? Maybe the monitor's just, you know, a giant pin, except it doesn't make you think positive. It makes you think negative and convincing the whole world to feed the wrong wolf. And right here, Casey very quickly comes to a conclusion that if we extend the metaphor we've been discussing of this story into our real world, is a lot more debated and controversial. She says, We need to turn that thing off. And so while it may sound like in our world, when someone says, we need to shut down Facebook, we need to shut down Twitter, that would be the Casey Newton line of thinking. Let's shut this thing down until we can regroup and figure out what to do. And as we will find... When they finally confront Nix, the stakes of that decision to shut it down were originally much higher than they were in the finished film. And in this moment, Casey is really laying out her thought process. She's relating her personal experience to the experience of the entire world. And to me, this is Casey showing her work. And she has this very deductive, optimistic, scientific monologue that will occur immediately before Nix's big speech, which is perhaps the polar opposite of all of those things. So this section of the movie that we're watching is great because it's the polar opposite of two monologue moments in the movie that come right after the other, and they represent the duel for the soul of this movie, Casey Newton on one side and David Nix on the other. Uh, before Nix's guards come in, in the screenplay, we had a little exchange between Frank and Athena, and it went something like this. A long beat. We need to chew on it because it's pretty mind-blowing. But Frank turns to Athena, utterly confident, and Frank says, The flicker. It's her. Athena smiles and says, She's half of it. Frank blushes a little. This would be a fairly wonderful moment if not for... The door opens, revealing three armed guards. One of them steps into the room, tough as nails. I like this little moment because it is making literal what is subtextual through their relationship, which is... Casey is the flicker, and Athena reasserting the two-hander structure of this character journey as she's half of it. You know, it's not just Casey. It requires Frank as well. Both of them need each other. They're the missing puzzle pieces to each other's lives. And I don't think this line was needed, but to me, it's very affirming to see it here. It's like seeing a little piece of evidence towards your ideas about something spread throughout a moment you didn't originally get to see. So I've always liked seeing this little, this little exchange between Frank and Athena. Frank would probably be loath to admit that he himself is one half of that flicker, 
because Casey Newton had been optimistic all of those years. Nothing had stopped her. And that didn't cause any kind of flicker on the monitor. It was because of the opportunity presented by the two of them coming together that the probability shifted. Alone, doom was imminent. Together, there is the smallest chance of survival. And what higher dramatic stakes could you ask for than that? It's time to go home. There's a little visual nuance that I've always liked here as well, which is when Nix's guards come in and say, it's time to go. On their hats, you can see this sort of hexagonal version of the Tomorrowland logo in all black, black on black on black. And it looks like a little bit the 1952 box version of the pin with the swinging open doors, except these are very clearly boxy closed doors that have sort of contained this swirling atom behind them, reinforcing obviously this idea of Nix thinking that he can contain nature and he has control over everything. You know, the sort of heavy handed burly man view of science. It's too bad we haven't gotten a closer view of these logos. We need that 4K, baby. Bring on that 4K. And if you don't think that the first thing I'm going to do when that 4K version of this movie drops is screenshot the little logo on these guys' caps, you don't know me at all. You have pins to make. There are pins to make, patches to embroider, and t-shirts to screen print. (laughs) And then those very guards escort our trio of heroes into what may be the most infamous scene in the entire movie. There is David Nix standing at some kind of terminal at what we've come to know as the bridgeway back to Earth, looking at this beautiful turquoise beach. Ah, it's uninhabited and uncharted. Listen to me. But it looks like a lovely place to spend your last days. In the screenplay, Nix originally said, it's uninhabited and uncharted. I don't think rescue is likely in the next two months, but it should be a nice place to spend your last days. (laughs) And this is when our heroes make the appeal to David Nix. One last chance for this guy to do the right thing. Ignoring, of course, all the murder that has occurred leading up to this point. And, you know, it is possible that we, the audience, saw the Dave Clarks obliterate those innocent humans, but that the heroes didn't. So, you know, they might have reason to give Nix the benefit of the doubt here. They are trying to appeal to his sense of goodwill, his sense of shared humanity, and... They just lay it all out for him. The monitor is acting as an antenna. It isn't just receiving tachyons. It is taking a possible future and, and making it... Amplifying it, like, it, transmitting it, like, like a feedback loop. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's coming from right there. Leading to Frank saying, it's a time bomb, David, and we're the ones who lit the fuse. And in the screenplay, Nix just looks at them, raises an eyebrow and says, a time bomb? And Athena can't help but say, he's bad at analogies. And Frank says, hey, I'm not bad at, you know, this was a callback to that moment that did end up into the movie when Frank feels he needs to defend the honor of his analogies, which I think are just fine. Frank, your analogies are just fine. Athena, you need to leave him alone. So Casey pleads, please listen to us. We still have 58 days to try to change things, but nothing will work as long as that thing is on. Please, you need to shut it down. Nix's response to Casey here is very interesting because there's not just two alternate versions of what he says to her. We indeed have another. And in the movie, what we get is this. Young lady, I'm going to assume that your knowledge of tachyonic fusion is a little sketchy. Shutting it down is impossible. There is no off. So Nix is establishing in this theatrical, 
canonical version of the movie that the monitor was built with no off button. It's impossible to shut it down. And so these are the stakes established in the movie. Can't turn it off. You're going to have to figure something else out. And obviously they do. It wasn't originally as clean as that. And you can really tell in the movie that they cut to Nix's back when he says, it's impossible, there is no off. Because that line was added in ADR. That was definitely something that was added later because the actual idea that was shot in the day is a little more complicated. It's a little bit more complex. We didn't actually gather that idea from the screenplay because in the version of it that we have, which was the final shooting draft for the film's reshoots, Nick simply says, I'm not shutting anything down on the whim of an adolescent. He's not even offering an explanation as to why. He's just saying, I won't do that, uh, which was probably another attempt to streamline over a little bit of a bumpy, complicated idea. But what we learned in the film's junior novelization is quite interesting. There was a much longer answer from Nix, and it went a little something like this, courtesy of the audiobook. Young lady, he said condescendingly, despite your delightful precociousness, I am going to assume you don't have a working knowledge of tachyonic fusion, so allow me to put this in terms you might understand. He paused. Turning it off? would permanently shut down this entire city. Every system, every project, all of it runs through this tower. Do you really think I'm going to set us back to the Dark Ages on the whim of an adolescent? So this is a really interesting idea because it really ups the stakes of the decision that our heroes have to make. It's not just that they're going to shut down the monitor and everything is going to proceed as planned in Tomorrowland. There are some ramifications they need to consider. This is going to represent essentially a blank slate for Tomorrowland. They're going to have to start from scratch in a lot of ways. We know, at the very least, that they're able to dust off the pin-generating machine. But other than that, it does seem like turning off that monitor and removing the central power source that this Tomorrowland had come to depend on, it is the infrastructural heart of the city as it exists. So it's not just that Casey and Frank are inheriting something. They're having a bit of a tabula rasa moment. This is going to be a new beginning, a fresh start, a blank slate. And that can also be daunting. In Nix's words, this is potentially going to send them back to the Dark Ages. Now, that may be him being a little bit dramatic, but it is setting up this idea that there are going to be consequences to shutting this thing down. The stakes of this would be would be more interesting in the film if we were actually being shown what the purpose of Tomorrowland is right now. I think the hard part in the film is that we don't really see a purpose besides the monitor. And, you know, a bit of in the screenplay or maybe in the junior novelization, it, I can't remember, it mentioned... Uh, you know, gathering the world's artwork and gathering the world's culture and saving it in Tomorrowland is sort of this like, you know, memoir of Earth after the inevitability happens. But short of that specific detail from a lore building perspective, we don't really know what Tomorrowland is doing at this point in time. That is something that we did neglect to touch on as much as we probably should have in the previous episode, which is this concept of Nick's saving the world's art and culture and the history of our earth so that we are not doomed to repeat all that led them to their demise. Which to me, I can almost understand why that was cut out of the film because it does play against some of the sins that we observe Nick's 
committing as a villain, which is to say he's so failure averse that it doesn't seem necessarily that he embraces it fully as that learning process. So the idea that he would collect all the world's art and culture as a way of learning from it kind of goes against that aspect of his villainy. So as delicious as it is from a world building perspective, I can kind of understand the impetus to delete that particular moment, which was something that was nestled within the section of the movie we talked about last week. History, art, salvaging it. Rather, it was lost forever. And then this next moment is an opportunity for Frank to have a little epiphany of his own to offer Casey this time. Because he's the one that's doing it. This is when everything hits the fan. The truth is coming out. They don't need to tell Nix what's going on. He's the one who's done it. And this is a moment often discussed. Nix's speech. He's going to fill us in. What's been going on? What was his thought process? Why did he do the things that he did? And what exactly were those things? Let's imagine... If you glimpsed the future and were frightened by what you saw, what would you do with that information? You would go to who? Politicians? Captains of industry? And how would you convince them? With data? Facts? Good luck. And in the screenplay, we get him saying, how would you avert Armageddon? I have to say that some of these not included portions of the speech that are in the screenplay but didn't make it into the final film seem ridiculously apropos for today. How would you avert Armageddon? Go to who? Politicians? Captains of industry? How would you convince them? With data? Facts? We tried. They'll debunk you. That feels like something that, given the situation that we've been in the last year, that is just so true and bleeding and just where we are. And it's one of these things that at the time it probably made sense to remove it because, you know, whatever, it shortened it up, it tightened it up a little bit. But now it feels uh, it feels ridiculously apropos. The only fa- facts that won't challenge are the ones that keep their wheels greased and the dollars flowing. Absolutely. We've seen it the last year. It's crazy how appropriate this particular speech is the start of this speech for just what we're experiencing is a human nature in this country right now. And as we learned from our conversation with Damon Lindelof, this speech in particular was solely the result of Brad Bird writing it, perhaps even rehearsing it himself at parties throughout the years. This does seem a little bit of a self-insert for Brad Bird in terms of his frustrations, his own response to the negativity, in turn, a negative response to uh, negativity. And this was something that Damon fully admitted to not touching. This was all Brad Bird. And so when there were those who had some level of criticism for the film, specifically for this scene, it is interesting to hear them theoretically throw Damon Lindelof under the bus when he admits to having absolutely nothing to do with the writing of this particular moment. Obviously, he was instrumental in setting up the character context that led up to this moment, and Nix doesn't just get here. This is the result of their collaboration over the years of development, but the actual language and the characterization in this moment is purely the effort of Brad Bird. And I can understand when people walk away with the interpretation that this speech 
what Nix is saying in this speech is what the movie is trying to say, because it does sort of line up with that man yelling at the clouds that is often associated with the personality of Brad Bird opining for another era. But when you look at it in context of the rest of the movie, which Brad Bird is equally the author of, Brad Bird didn't write this one scene. He wrote the entire film with Jensen and Lindelof. It paints a very different story. And the literal dialogue is not the theme of the movie. The theme is the interactions of the characters, the decisions that they make, the observable choices on display, and the values dancing through all of those decisions. And so the fact that these words are coming out of the villain's mouth In the same way, in The Last Jedi, we have Kylo Ren saying, let the past die, kill it if you have to, became an infamous line because people thought that's what the movie was trying to say. People misinterpreted it, misapplied it, even though it was coming out of the mouth of the villain. The words coming out of the villain's mouths will never be the thematic statement of the movie because the villain is antagonizing our heroes and his values are opposite of theirs. So to me, this is a moment of self-awareness for Brad Bird. He knows that that frustration is not a productive one. And he has made this movie to say, I get it. We're going to give a very relatable monologue to the villain. But I'm saying that those urges within me are not the correct urges. Yeah, and I think that this becomes especially hard because immediately after the film came out, in both reviews and held this oldest film, this oldest video I can find on YouTube of the film looks like it was taken from a cam inside of a theater, uh, presents this clip and presents this message very much out of context to the rest of the film. And it kind of an ironic way completely categorizes what Nick's wants in the film. This idea, and I'm jumping ahead here, but this like, oh, you know, they packaged it up. They made it easily consumable, right? And you saw this with this film where tons of reviewers, tons of people on YouTube and clips. I mean, the most popular clip here has over a quarter of a million views. It's just this speech. And people go, wow, this guy is right. He is right. That is our society today. And it's like, no, he's the villain. He's what we're supposed to be against. And I think it is an exercise of good writing to give a relatable viewpoint to your villain. You don't want this mustache-twirling, completely unrelatable figure that is merely a physical threat. There is an ideological threat here. There is a spiritual threat. And to have him describe something in a compelling way, I think that's great writing. But the way in which it was done did indeed draw attention to itself. And so... I do ask myself, while we wouldn't ever want to fully nix the speech to invoke the title of this episode, I do sometimes wonder if there was a less overbearing way for it to have been expressed in the movie so that the rest of the air wouldn't have been sucked out of the room in the same way the monitor sucked the air out of Tomorrowland. How could this have been presented in a way that would not loom over the rest of the movie? Because in pop culture, there are sometimes these things that become the topic of a particular movie. You can't talk about J.J. Abrams, for example, without someone shouting lens flares. And it's like, that's great. There's not really a conversation to be had about lens flares, just as there's not a tremendous conversation to be had about the contents of this speech on their own. In the context of the rest of the movie, it's very interesting. He's a dynamic villain, beautifully performed. His motivations are interesting, understandable, relatable, but his conclusion is incorrect. And the movie proves Nick's wrong. And the characters of Frank 
Casey and Athena represent the positive communal collaborative values that go against this kind of dystopic authoritarian dictatorship being presented by a guy who just knows better and is so sure of the thing that he controls that he's not even willing to accept the evidence in front of him. This is a plea to anti-science. This is a plea to personal interest. And there is something sadly American about Nick's, even though he is a British character. There is something depressingly individualistic and lacking in any sense of shared community about this guy. And so, yeah, it does disappoint me a little bit when this scene represents the entire movie for anyone who is aware of the sort of cultural conversation around it. This is the quoted scene. This is the quoted moment. As you said, this was the one that someone with a camera in their pocket shot in the movie so that they could upload it to YouTube and get a bunch of views. But outside of the movie itself, it doesn't speak for it. This is not what the movie is trying to say. It's something that I think fans of this movie are always going to have to contend with. You both have people who didn't like the rest of the movie and enjoyed this speech because they were pumping their fist in the air and saying, nah, this guy's got something to say. You know, hey, he says it like it is. This guy tells the truth. He tells it like it is. Uh, and then you have some people who may have enjoyed the road movie that they've been treated to up until this point. And then this is the moment that they were lost. There really is no way, good way to contend with the legacy of this particular moment. The original script, the original screenplay, calls for a couple of cutbacks to Nick's. I think if we would have had a couple of cutbacks during the epiphany moment of Casey, I absolutely 100% believe that at that point in time, they could have cut, they could have done her cutting back to Nick's and Nick's giving not necessarily a form of this speech, but us physically seeing how he's going to broadcast this idea of doomsday to the world and really just create that connection that it's him. So that then when you set up this speech, you're like, oh, this is the crazy guy who wants to destroy the world. Instead, what happens is, is that instead of him being the crazy guy who wants to destroy the world because it's presented out of context, a lot of people hooked on to this and said, no, no, I like this guy. This is what it stands for. And I think that in the film, that context just wasn't super, 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 super provided as a way of like, oh yeah, he's absolutely 100% causing this. And I think you could have done something with, with Casey's sort of epiphany of, oh yeah, it's this guy. He's the bad guy. I would like to be quite clear that I love this speech. I think it is wonderfully written and I think it is even better in its performance. And I think that Hugh Laurie really makes a meal out of it. I'm more frustrated with the cultural reaction to it and in that sense, wondering, well, even though I liked it, I wonder if we could sacrifice something that I liked in order to have deferred some of the misinterpretation that occurred because of the current form of this scene. I actually don't have a suggestion because I think it functions just fine uh, as it stands. For me, I was, I was in hook, line, and sinker. I found it to be wonderful. But I can't deny that I have heard and received the criticism of those for whom it did not work. And that just makes you wonder, man, what could it have been other than this? Even though I love it, even though it is an emotional moment for me, 
and uh, does all the things to me that I think were intended with the moment. Uh, this is one of those times when I have to acknowledge that you and I are very firmly uh, in the minority here, you know, not just in our fandom for this movie, but in this particular moment. And so it's, it's a difficult one for me to wrestle with because on the one hand, I've enjoyed it since the moment I saw it. And on the other hand, I am a little bit tired of talking just about this scene to the exclusion of the rest of the wonderful scenes in this movie. The probability of widespread annihilation kept going up. The only way to stop it was to show it, to scare people straight. Because what reasonable human being wouldn't be galvanized by the potential destruction of everything they've ever known or loved? Early on in the speech, we also have another one of those little vestigial beats that acts as the only remaining evidence of a deleted moment, when Nix says, the probability of widespread annihilation kept going up. And that is essentially one sentence replacing that entire second Nix monologue that we talked about in the last episode. Everything Nix said, which was a compelling history of his experimentation and an emotional concept, it really is just stated right here. The probability of widespread annihilation kept going up. That tells you right away, he kept looking and the number increased. Plot-wise, that's all you really need to know. Dramatically, obviously, that deleted moment did give you a little more meat on the bone, but there it is right there in the movie, in the theatrical cut, just as much as anyone probably needs to know. To save civilization, I would show its collapse. And when Nix kind of spreads his arms out in this grand gesture and says, to save civilization, I would show them its collapse. We originally get a little more from him, which is, it was my Hail Mary pass, and I threw it perfectly. I think the screenplay, Nix, is a little bit more conceited, a little bit more pompous than the version that we got. And, uh, you know, I can imagine it, but I like the personality of the Nix that we got. Even having him described by Casey as the cape man, you know, I, I do wonder if there was ever a version of his costume that was just a straight up cape and not the long sort of scalloped cloak that we have him now. There may have indeed been a more traditional villainous form of Nyx that we're seeing the remnants of in the screenplay here. But how do you think this vision was received? How do you think people responded to the prospect of imminent doom? They gobbled it up like a chocolate eclair. They didn't fear their demise, they repackaged it. And when Nix is finally talking about how that vision he presented to the world was received, we get a little more here where he says, they didn't fear its demise, they repackaged it as a commodity. Turns out the end of the world is hot. Dystopia is positively sexy. It can be enjoyed in video games, television series, books, movies. The entire planet wholeheartedly embraced the apocalypse and raced towards it with gleeful abandon. Planet heating up? Drill, baby, drill. Oceans depleted? Fish, baby, fish. Want to wage war without mussing your hair? Drones, baby, drones. <laughs> I think I would have relished seeing Hugh Laurie say the phrase, drones, baby, drones, and it would have become a meme. I'm saying it right now. If this movie contained the phrase, drones, baby, drones, it would have become a meme, no question. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. In the last part of this scene, when he's his most frustrated, you know, he, he, he talks about the earth crumbling all around you and you have simultaneous epidemics of both starvation and obesity. Explain that one. And I love this deleted, especially given what's going on right now, 
I love this deleted line that never made it into the movie, but was in the screenplay. Your best minds create nothing but impenetrable math to leech money from the system without producing anything. Also a little bit of a self-own there, because what is Nick's doing right now? You know, there is a little bit of irony underneath that statement if it had made it in, you know. Uh, let's just say that self-awareness is something that Nick's lacks. And then we basically get the entire rest of the speech with nothing nothing changed. I would like to highlight just how brilliant Hugh Laurie is in this moment. This is not an easy thing to do. And he's talked about it a little bit in interviews. The idea that they've built this humongous set on a soundstage solely for the purpose of you delivering this monologue. The pressure was extremely high for this moment. And just like the scene before it, I think it's shot wonderfully. There's an energy to this scene and how it is being filmed, I think, is just as important as how it is being delivered, which is, to my mind, absolutely perfect. I think this is a tour de force moment for him. And I'm not going to lie, even as someone who does not necessarily agree with the observations that Nix is saying, I do find myself rolling over the way his intonation expresses those ideas. The specific diction is iconic. I I have no other way of describing it other than iconic. The language has lingered with me from this moment. Obviously, once you've seen the movie enough times, you know every single line in the movie, so that's not remarkable. But there is something that ingrained itself in me in the way that he expressed these ideas. And I think it's because it is so rooted in his character and where he is in this moment and so expertly described. And so some of these line deliveries to me are just the absolute optimal way to say this. Some lines are interpretable. There are many ways you can imagine them being said very well, but the way he chooses to say each one of these things, it's just, you couldn't do it any better. It it feels like he did his homework is what I'm trying to say. I think he milked this speech for everything that it's worth and got every last moment to its absolute height. Some of those ones that stand out to me. So you dwell on this, oh, terrible future. That moment where he, it's another one of those little Hugh Laurie improvisations where he, he kind of hugs himself and says that, oh, terrible future. He's really zhuzhing it up and making it more than it is on the page, which is just to say, dwell on this terrible future. And he kind of hits the scene with this punctuation mark. What he seems to think is the crux of his idea. You resign yourselves to it because that future doesn't ask anything of you today. And he kind of moves his hand forward almost to put a period on the end of it. Doesn't ask anything of you today. And I think this is the real core of the relationship between Frank and Nix. I think The reason we're cutting to George Clooney so much in this moment is because like before, when Frank was talking about Casey seemingly, but really talking about himself, Nix seems to be talking about everything else. But at a certain point, we start to realize he's not just talking about humanity. He's not just talking about the fate of the world. He is talking about the plight of Frank Walker and how Frank's plight is in a way, mimetic of the world's plight. And this shut off depression, sort of locked away, not engaging with others, just really sort of isolated as Nix is isolated. That's the thing. They're speaking to each other in this moment. And when he says, that future doesn't ask anything of you today, and then he goes on. So yes, we saw the iceberg, we warned the Titanic, but you will just steer it for it anyway, full steam ahead. Why? 
because you want to sink. I think that's the moment that really stuck with me is when Nick says those words, because you want to sink. There's just something so cold in the way that he says it and so judgmental. Here is a character that has fully acclimated himself to being judge and jury of all humanity. And this, this is his final declaration because you want to sink, not me. I'm othering you by saying you, and you have brought this upon yourself. This is not the result of some kind of mass conspiracy. This is you wanting it and you gave up. So when he says those words, you gave up, he's talking to Frank because in a certain way, Frank did give up. Frank did stop fighting. Frank did move away from who he once was. He gave up on a lot of those things that fueled him as a child to the point where the Frank we meet halfway through the movie bears very little resemblance to the little boy that we spent the first part of the film with. And important to remember that from a from a story perspective as well, we, you know, Frank had the Edison cylinder the whole time. Yeah, that's right. He had a way to get back to Tomorrowland. He had a way to try to change Nick's, convince himself that his algorithm wasn't necessarily the future. But he didn't. It wasn't until Casey, that second part of the flicker, inspired him to. And I think specifically when I saw this and this idea of you want to sink, you gave up. What a direct call out to the early walker that we see just sitting in his house literally looking at you know the number on his screen going yeah this this is inevitable i called it and it goes back even further because saying you gave up to a character who we are introduced to at the beginning of the movie as a kid saying i'm not giving up and that is so beautifully stated because in the dialogue nix isn't saying You were a boy who never gave up and now you gave up. He's not making it literal. So while you could say this is a big monologue moment and it's doing a lot of what they say you shouldn't do, which is tell, not show, you know, you want to show something. I actually think it is showing because it's not being said literally. You do have to put it together. You have to draw correlations with the moments earlier in the movie and who these characters are. And when Nick says you gave up, he's implicitly saying you're not the person you once were and this is why you need her. Because she is who you once were. You were connected in that way, and that is why you need each other. She didn't have the means. You gave her the means. And she is now going to bring you back to the light. And we talked about The Last Jedi a little bit ago, but this is another way in which I feel there is this thematic echo with The Last Jedi. Frank in his exile is Luke on his island. He has given up there as well. And he needs this young, optimistic face of the future to bring him out of that and show him the world still needs him. He still has a place here. His contributions are not over. You don't have to give up. There is still a place for you. And I can learn from your mistakes if you're willing to share them with me. And that ties back into this idea of science is a process of accepting failure and transcending it. You're accepting what has come before, and then you're transcending it. That classic improv idea of yes, and we are accepting what we have here, and now we are moving further beyond it, to coin a little plus ultra translation there. But this is the heart of this movie. It is a jaded old man who is being brought back into the light by youth, by exuberance, by optimism, by joy, by positivity, and reconnecting with all of those things in this moment when the villain is calling him out on how far he has gone from it by basically saying, you're me, because Nix has given up. 
I mean, in every conceivable way. He never even tried, if you ask me. Nix was never the guy coming up with the idea. He was always just going to take what someone else did and iterate on it until it fits his vision of the world. You know, he was never really a scientist, even if he considers himself one, and I think that he does. But that is why this moment is so delicious. And I think if you really just wanted to cut to the heart of this moment, forget the rest of Nix's justifying monologue, this last bit is the moment. It is about Nix and Frank. It is about Frank and Casey. And it is about those values that they all represent. And this is where it's all coming to a head. And so that's why I really do love the finale of this movie. It is these rich, juicy themes that you can really dig your teeth into. And it does require a bit of you, just as the movie is implicitly saying, you have to participate in the future. That is a moment where Nix is peeking behind that particular curtain by saying it doesn't ask anything of you today. To a certain level, that could be interpreted as Nix talking to the critics of this movie. Oh, you wanted that bright future because it doesn't ask anything of you. Even the movie isn't giving it to you. You have to do it right now. Assuming Nix is the leader at the start of the film when we're at the 1964 World's Fair, right? This is the entire crux of that scene with young Frank bringing the jetpack is... No, no, no. You don't just get to come to the fair and consume the future and be shown it. You have to make it yourself. You have to do something for it. Nix has always had this idea of you have to be involved with it. You have to make it happen. And so his failure was assuming that, oh, if I broadcast these negative messages to the world, every single person will see it and say, I need to do something to make this not happen. But instead, what just happened is this feedback loop. You see this duality between, I I mean, one thing that I love about the current version of Spaceship Earth is you have the great Dame Judi Dench saying, and we're all inventing the future one step at a time, which is like, no, no, we're all involved with this. You all have a role. You all have these, you know, every day that passes on the face of the earth and the decisions that you make affect its future. We're all actively participating yeah, I'm always down for a good Spaceship Earth analogy, because if you put a gun to my head and said, what's your favorite theme park attraction? Part of me still believes it is Spaceship Earth, even in its current form. And who knows what it's going to become in the future. You gave up. That's not the monitor's fault. That's yours. So he's not even taking full responsibility for the thing that he's brought to fruition here and brought to this point. If Frank had been the one solely in charge of the monitor, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they would be standing in that same place just then. So to me, this is a little bit of Nick's abdicating his responsibility for what has gone on with the monitor and what he has chosen to do to humanity. Even if his intentions were theoretically noble, I question that a little bit as well. There's a lot more of him in what he's doing than he's willing to admit. There's a lot more of that hubris coming through and his unwillingness to accept the views of others establishes him as the true antagonist to these community building ideas that are represented by the heroes. Thanks for visiting, Frank. It's genuinely nice to see you again. Nix tries to undo everything he's just said, apparently, by telling Frank that he's genuinely glad to have seen him. He extends his hand to shake before banishing Frank to an island on which he will inevitably die. And Frank doesn't stop grabbing. He puts his hand on Nix's big fancy touchscreen watch. And Nix says, what are you doing? And Frank says the thing that we've wanted to hear him say the entire film. You 
you're doing. Not giving up. You're going to throw my childhood words back at me, oh villainous one? No, no, no. It's never too late. It's never too late to change. And now, in this moment, I'm not giving up. The boy who said he would never give up has at last returned. And in this moment, when faced with impending doom and only the smallest sliver of hope to stop it, says that he's not giving up. He's breaking the patterns that he has established over the last several decades and coming back into his optimistic form thanks to that shared journey with Casey, who has offered up her epiphany, her observation on the situation, which, quite frankly, if she wasn't there with him, and even under whatever circumstance Frank ended up in Tomorrowland, it's possible he may not have fully understood what Nyx was doing. And it took Casey's individual experience through Athena's recruitment bring brought to Frank and seeing everything that was going on. She put the pieces together. She, after all, knows how things work. And without her, I don't know that Frank, A, would even be in that situation, and B, even if he was, would have gotten to the same conclusion that she did. So for now, we end on this beautiful concept of Frank not giving up. We're about to lead into the next sequence, which is a fantastic action scene and we'll all take up arms in the Battle of Bridgeway. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you've got a question, we've got answers. If you'd like to record us an audio message, feel free to send that our way too. We'd love to hear any memories that you might have of the first time that you saw Tomorrowland or anything that we've talked about in our podcast series, and we might play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this trip through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we sound the alarm to bring about Athena's Awakening. We will be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there's always a place where dreamers dreamers can stick together.